today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, can you give us a little bit of a a lesson on supply chain management here? And an empty shelf means the system is ground to a halt? (laughs) You're absolutely right. Um, There's two separate points here, one generically about supply chains. And then secondly, uh, so let me deal with the second point first because I can deal with it very quickly. This myth, this urban legend that somehow highly regulated and prescribed drugs and vaccines are just laying about the shelf like at Walmart. This is, I don't know where this idea came from. It is the most fatuous, nonsensical foolishness I've ever heard. Pharmaceuticals are one of the most regulated supply chains. In fact, I cannot off the top of my head right now, maybe I could go if I went and studied it, I can't think of a more of a, a supply chain that is more regulated and proscribed. That means in plain English, ordinary people can't walk around with you know vaccines in their back pocket or vials of morphine or heroin or whatever. Drugs are proscribed and rigidly controlled in the supply chain from the manufacturer to the distributor to the drugstore or to the public health agency. They don't lie about on shelves. I don't know where this mad, barking dog mad idea came from. Our drug supply chain, and that's not just Canada, states, UK, Germany, highly controlled. Let's not use the word prescribed. It's too big a word. Highly controlled, highly regulated. Only certain people can touch it at each stage of the chain. People cannot walk in casually and pick it up. Let me now go, so there, we've dealt with that. Let me just deal with the supply chain issue you've talked about. Uh, I I deal with this, and I've been dealing with this in my class for literally 30 years, uh, because it's a fascinating part of strategy. And I'll keep this very short and quick, but bear with me. If you go back about 120 years to the emergence of the modern large corporation, which emerged in the late 1800s, and I'm talking U.S. Steel, I'm talking U.S. Railroads, and and then later, of course, uh, Sears and General Motors and DuPont and Henry Ford. And these companies basically did everything in-house. There was no almost no outsourcing because they were all paranoid, these uh, original uh, entrepreneurs, robber barons, as they were sometimes called, hugely filthy rich, and Henry Ford was the most famous of them all. He said, I don't want anybody to touch anything on the Ford supply chain unless they work for Ford. So he bought a rubber plantation in Malaysia to make sure the rubber came from a Ford plant. He bought railroads to ship the coal. He bought coal mines to to produce the coal. So he controlled the supply chain from beginning to end. And then starting in the late 19, mid-1980s and on down through the present, because of uh, the explosion of IT or information technology, computers got very, very powerful, and more and more companies said, you know what, we don't have to make every aspect. We can outsource parts of the supply chain to independent third parties that are more efficient than we are, that are better because they've got a core competency. So my famous example is Honda. I own a Honda. And there's an average 17,000 parts in an ordinary gasoline um, automobile. And Honda makes the, the, the transmission, the powertrain, and it makes the engine because they have core competencies. They're brilliant at making small, highly efficient engines and the, and the transmission. Everything else in your Honda is outsourced. You're sitting on a seat and you say, I own a Honda. Yeah. No, you own about a one-fifth or a one-third Honda. 
everything else, the driving, you know, the seats and the skin and the paint and the, and the radio and the stereo and the, <laughs> everything else is outsourced to the supply chain because there's these big companies, and I'm talking the General Motors and the Fords and the Toyotas, realize that they can, as I said, you can outsource to specialty companies that have specialized in one little small part of the supply chain, just making car seats or just making steering wheels. And they're really, really good at it because that's their core competency. And Ford's core competency, or Honda, is to put all these bits and pieces together. The same occurs with a computer. Every one of the people who are listening to this show, I'm sure, has a computer in their house. And they say, oh, I've got an HP computer, or I've got a Dell. No, you don't. All the Dell does is buy all the bits and the pieces from all the individual companies that specialize, the disk drive manufacturers and the companies that make the chips, the RAM chips, and the supply, you know, and so on. When I buy a computer, I don't buy from Dell. I go to our IT department at Carleton, and I tell them, here's all the pieces I want. Here's the yeah. exact brand of, 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 of hard drive, flash memory. Here's the exact RAM I want. Here's the exact Wi-Fi card. They all buy all the bits and pieces, and they assemble it. And there's no brand on it called Dell or anything. So because I'm using the IT supply chain for computing industry. So there's thousands of companies out there that specialize. And so they keep inventory, as you said, at each stage in the supply chain, because each stage down below them that uses it calls them up on a regular basis, once a day, once a week, once every two, three days, and orders some units. And so they have to keep inventory on hand to ship it out right away. And so there's, there's buffers, small buffers, in the supply chain. I don't mean a year. I don't mean 30 days because the mm-hmm. supply chains are so efficient now. And the good news about efficiency is it drives down the cost of the supply chain, which reduces the cost of the product to you and to me. And that's good news for us. So there's my little thing what on you, supply chains. Uh, I think what surprises me is the medical industry that are saying things like this. What do you want people to know about the supply chain here in Canada of vaccine. I have enormous respect for medical doctors. I go to medical doctors. I had my two knees replaced by two medical doctors. Seriously. Cut it right open, took the whole thing out. I got titanium knees. But let's be very, very clear. A lot of Canadians think that the healthcare system is the is the pharmaceutical supply chain system. Being treated by a doctor has absolutely nothing to do with working for Pfizer. These companies, and I have some friends who work for some of these monstrous, huge, gigantic pharmaceutical companies, they are not hospitals. They are not. They, are, they hire armies of people with PhD. I have a friend of mine has a PhD from Cambridge University in biochemistry. And she goes into a lab, and I like to make jokes to her, you know, that she goes and kills mice and tortures mice. Of course she doesn't. Of course she doesn't. She's playing with, I don't know, molecules under a microscope and looking at how this molecule or what, I'm not even using the right words. I'm not a scientist. And they interact with other molecules, okay? And, And so these, think of the pharmaceutical companies as gigantic, specialized universities where they don't have to teach any students. And my good friend with a PhD from Cambridge actually said that to me. I said, why don't you go become a professor? She said, I don't want to teach students. I just want to do research. Hmm. And, and so they are in laboratories. These giant, these Pfizer's and companies like that are giant R&D labs, science, chemistry, biochemistry, R&D labs. And the medical doctors are doctors. They're trained as doctors, and that's good. We want them to be. 
but they are not experts on the supply chain and on the business of making pharmaceutical products. It's very, very capital intensive. The FDA, Food and Drug Administration, that's the police of the pharmaceutical industry, have very good statistics that because of their very stringent and strict rules, that roughly two, if you start out with 100 drugs at the very beginning of the R&D process, two to four of those 100 will ultimately, eight years later, make it through to FDA approval to become a product that a doctor can prescribe. In other words, they weed out somewhere around 95 to 98% of all of the candidate potential would-be drugs in the supply chain, uh, in the R&D chain, I should say. I shouldn't say the supply chain. As they go through the research and development exploration process, then ultimately that one drug or two drugs is approved. Then that company called Pfizer or Moderna or AstraZeneca can then start to mass produce it in a very high-tech uh, production uh, factory where they got all kinds of lab technicians in white coats. And with the greatest respect to our doctors, most of the doctors have never been inside a pharmaceutical company. I mean, you know, I had the that. same discussion. I had the same discussion with a prof in in regard to vaccine production. You know, we used to make it back in the 80s. Well, that was before the global economy and free trade. Governments don't make vaccines. They make no, it right. uh, environmentally friendly for those to those vaccine companies to come to Canada and do business. It's private company that produces vaccine, not government. And and let me go much. I agree with every word you just said. Let me go further. The process today, and again, I'm quoting on conversations I've had with real scientists, that's people with real PhDs in biochemistry working in a real pharmaceutical company, okay? the, the way they do drugs, drug discovery, as they like to call it today, is they said the 80s is like, you know, prehistoric yeah. man and caveman. Yeah. And it's funny, and yet people will go back to there and forget about the global movement and why we are where we are. Ian, i got to cut it off there. We're fresh out of time. Ian Lee, professor with the Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, we'll talk about rail next time, but thank okay. you so much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.